to COVID-19 now. A record increase in cases in the last 24 hours, mainly in the United States, Brazil, India and South Africa. And we're seeing apocalyptic headlines in France. A bus driver has died after being attacked by passengers after he asked them to wear face masks. And New York has a plague of rats. Is this the way it all ends? Cambridge University virologist Dr Chris Smith is back to survey the medical scene. We'll leave the existential questions for another day. Hi, Chris. Hello, Kim. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Well, I've just totting up the days. It's about a month since we last chatted to each other. A month more COVID water under the bridge. New Zealand celebrated, then it uncelebrated. We got jealous and sent you a couple of COVID cases just to keep you in business. And um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) then you were able to celebrate again. Uh, America has seen uh, big numbers all over the place again. And Britain, meanwhile, slowly eases its lockdown. And we're back in the pub. Pubs are busy. People are also revelling in the idea they're going to be able to play all sports and cricket pretty soon and the gym's going to be open so you can go swimming again. So there's a slow smoothing of the way back towards normality, at least as close as we can get, while meanwhile one of our cities remains in an extended lockdown, as does Melbourne in Australia. How are they going to get Leicester out of lockdown as a measure of interest? The whole point is to try to find out why this has happened in the first place. Because if you can identify the root cause of outbreaks, then A, you can preempt them and B, you can prevent them. Because we're not all going to be in a position where you see the numbers rising and then you say, right, back to square one, the whole country is locked up again. It's going to be a much more strategic thing going forward because we are going to see a lot more of this in in many countries around the world. We're going to see ripples, probably not enormous great tsunamis like we did the first time, but we're going to see extended ripples. And if we can work out where they're going to happen, we can predict them, then we know what the factors are. We've got some chance of, of helping to reduce the impact and we will just surgically go in, do surveillance, lockdown areas or suppress spread by whatever mechanism works best and hopefully for the minimum time and then back to back to business for that area Leicester's a massive experiment they'll find out what works what's necessary what's probably overkill and and then work out what to do because we're we're going to have to get used to doing this winter is going to come and and we're going to see more of this Let's talk about what has changed in the last month. The World Health Organization has changed its view of whether the virus can be airborne. It's spread not only by droplets, it seems, that fall quite quickly to the ground, but also by aerosol. And this seems to fuel people's views that face masks should be mandatory. Have you changed your view on that at all? Well, actually, just to be clear um, on what you just said, the World Health Organization haven't actually changed anything yet. I spoke to Shelley Miller, who's one of the scientists who penned the open letter to the World Health Organization this week. Uh, Some 200 plus scientists wrote to the WHO and the WHO have acknowledged the letter and they have said thank you and we will consider its contents and can we schedule a conversation. So they're they're going to have a conversation. They haven't actually come out yet and said this is what they're they're changing. The point that uh, scientists, including Shelley Miller, who's an engineering professor in um, Boulder, Colorado, are trying to make is that previously a lot of the messaging has been around droplets, big droplets. So when you cough and sneeze, 
just talk actually you blow out these big droplets and the droplets come from your airways the virus is in your airways if you've got it so when you blow out these droplets they come out as virus prepackaged in these droplets and if they're big and heavy they sink quickly to the floor they don't travel very far they get trodden underfoot and if you stand a long way from somebody you're not going to catch it but the point that's being made, uh, and I'm not really sure why this was overlooked, because we've been you know, clear right from the start that um, this is a respiratory infection. But people seem to obsess about these big droplets, and they ignored the small ones. Now, the small ones are really super fine droplets that everyone was saying, well, when you do aerosol generating procedures in hospitals, in other words, you put tubes into people, you do suctioning and things like that, you do various exercises with people that make them cough and splutter, this can generate more of these fine droplets smaller droplets they also have virus they can also transmit infection but people had had largely not dwelled on those as a as a vector and because they're smaller they bob around in the air for longer they travel farther and they could therefore encroach on people much more than the social distancing measures they also go straight through and around masks much more easily so this doesn't say oh this this means we'll have to wear face masks what this says is we have to be very cognizant of the fact that a lot of the buildings we're all knocking around in and a lot of the black and yellow stripy tape and one-way streets we've put in our buildings perhaps is is just the tip of the iceberg and that will help a bit but we've got quite some way to go because we have to consider much more carefully the air where the air goes and circulates in a building how it spreads because that's how we're 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 going to be seeing a substantial number of transmissions, especially in winter time in, in countries like the UK, when everyone retreats indoors and shuts the windows and doors and ends up stewing in an office for longer than they'd like. There seems to be a pressure around the world for governments to make face masks mandatory, however. What's your view on it now? Well, I'm going to wait and see. Um, at the moment, what we've said in the UK is that uh, if you're going into an area where you can't do social distancing or where someone may encroach on you, then this is going to be a good idea because what it will do is it will protect them from you. And so public transport, for example, in England at the moment, that's the case. Nicola Sturgeon, the uh, First Minister in Scotland, has said if you're going out to the shops, then you should be wearing some kind of face covering. Um, but at the moment, that's that's all the legislation that's been passed. So we're going to have to wait and see where we stand on this. I mean, I think there are circumstances where this may be useful. There are circumstances where this is going to be less useful. I mean, taken to extremes, for example, if you live in the middle of nowhere, like, like I do, if I walk out my front door, I will meet nobody. Uh, no one will meet me. I'm not going to infect anybody. They're not going to infect me. But by walking on the village green, I could potentially be committing a crime if we mandate that you have to wear a face mask outside. And so you go for a stroll with your dog and you're now a criminal until proven otherwise. I think there has to be a proportionate thing here. And I think we have to rely on people to do the right thing rather than come along with a big stick because carrot works much better than stick. And our, our research on vaccines and vaccination strategies tells us that. Chris, what is the situation with immunity and whether having COVID-19 confers any? Mm. Well, this is the outstanding question. I was actually sent last week a near patient or a point of care test for antibodies by a laboratory in America who I got talking to. And they said, would we interview them for a programme I was going to make? And I said, will you send me some of the tests first? So 
dutifully they did and this FedEx box arrived and it had all these test kits in it. So I then phoned up my friends at the hospital who are immunologists who have made their own antibody test and I said, can we run some of these tests and compare them with uh, your test? So last week we went to the hospital and they found somebody who's a positive control, somebody who was going to just donate blood as a negative control and then discovered she's hooching with antibodies to coronaviruses so she's now the lab guinea pig. And we, we tested her on this point of care test and we also ran the blood through the laboratory experiments and she does have antibodies registrable on both but the point of care test was a very weak positive for this person and then you ask the question well how representative is she of the general population now the data we have at the moment it's an emerging area and it's still very uh, unclear or far from clear exactly what the having antibodies against coronaviruses actually means but it looks like uh, and, and we're seeing similar sorts of numbers cropping up across countries, which means they're probably sort of right. In the UK, we think about 5 to 10% of the population have antibody. And that's obviously um, going to vary across the country. If you live in London, it's probably north of 10%. If you live in Bedford, which is northwest of London, there's been a big outbreak there. And more than 20% of people seem to register antibodies there. Uh, in in um, healthcare workers, it's about 7%. In more remote places, it's as low as 3%. And Spain this week followed up with their own study that came out in the Lancet Medical Journal where they've gone to more than 65,000 people across Spain. And they've questioned them about their symptoms. They've then got blood from them and tested them using one of these test kits like the one I mentioned that looks a bit like a mini pregnancy test. And they have found similar sorts of numbers. It varies between 3% and 10% of people, except in people who say they've got a positive history of having had coronavirus in the two or three weeks before they took the antibody test, as in they had proven test for coronavirus, and then 87% of those have antibodies. And that gives us some kind of confidence that the tests are detecting the right thing. The big question, though, is how long does this last for? And that we just don't know. We've only known about the virus for six months or so, so we don't know whether those antibodies are going to be there for another six months or if they're just going to dwindle and fizzle out because other members of the coronavirus family that are very similar to this new coronavirus and that, 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 that naturally infect humans, those antibodies disappear within a year or so. So we don't know if we'll be able to achieve long, long, long-term immunity against this. At the moment, it's a, uh, an unwritten book. There goes the vaccine then, if that's the case. Well, that's what people are saying, that they're, they're worried that if we can't drive a long-term immune response against this class of viruses, it does undermine the potential that a vaccine, what a vaccine can deliver. At the moment, though, we just don't know. And what we might see these vaccines doing is not preventing infection, but mitigating the effects of infection because the studies that were done by the Oxford group, this is um, from the Jenner Institute, they sent their virus to America. It was put into monkeys, which are a reasonable test model for catching COVID. And those monkeys that were vaccinated did not develop severe disease, unlike the control animals, but they did nevertheless get infected and were unfortunately able to pass the infection on. But it's still a win in some respects, because if you can mitigate the impact of infection, then you've got some way of, of preventing people from getting severe disease, which at the end of the day, that's what we're most worried about, isn't it? But one of the main problems seems to be the, the mystery of asymptomatic spread or pre-symptomatic spread. And that's the, the, the big unknown, is it not? 
Yes, and when you and I first started talking, we were saying that this is one of the success stories of this virus. This is why it is so effective. It has a significant proportion of people who have it have no symptoms or very few symptoms. And this means that they go about their business untroubled. They write off any symptoms they do have as inconsequential, but they remain infectious and can spread it. And as as it can do that in such a high fraction of people, and we now know probably a very, very high fraction of people, that's what's contributed to its ability to penetrate so well across the world population. A study last week from the Office for National Statistics in the UK, it was a, a small analysis, but um, involved some 115 people. They actually found that as many as two thirds of people who they examined had no symptoms or very trivial symptoms with this. And and so as a result, if you extrapolate that to the population, then you could say, you know, with, with reasonable confidence, maybe half of people who catch this may have no or such few symptoms that they would just write them off as, I, I just feel a bit tired today. And And the lady I spoke about just now who lent me her blood for the point of care test, I said to her, did you have any symptoms? And she said, no, not that I can think of. Maybe a bit tired one day, but you know, you attach significance to coincidence under these circumstances, so that may just have been a coincidental tired day. So this this is a serious issue. Why is it that South Asian people in England and BAME people in Britain seem to be at higher risk of dying from COVID-19 than white patients? Is it, a listener asks, because of environmental or genetic reasons? Uh, there's probably a range of reasons for this. And, uh, you know, I was one of the first people actually to highlight this a number of um, months ago now, that there was this apparent association. I started seeing this, uh, these numbers going up and we, we were quite worried about it. So we're actually actively looking into this. And I don't think there's one single answer. I think it's a range of factors. And I think socioeconomic factors almost certainly are quite high up in the mix. But certainly there are there are likely to be some genetic elements as well. I mean, the obvious extreme one is if you take sickle cell anemia. People who carry the gene for sickle cell anemia, much more common in people who are of African descent because it gives resistance to malaria. So there's what's called a balanced polymorphism. People who carry that disease or are carriers, they have what's called the sickle cell trait. So they're not overtly ill with the disease except under extreme circumstances but they carry it and a proportion of their haemoglobin is affected they are very hard to infect with malaria and because they have that natural inborn resistance to malaria the gene has become more common in that population but if they catch coronavirus they will develop much more severe disease so they're shielding themselves so there's an extreme example of, of a genetic disease in a particular group of individuals who are therefore more susceptible there are almost certainly going to be other more trivial things um, that have a more subtle bias on the on the disease risk and and they're going to emerge over time and one of the studies we're doing with uh, a team in Perth Western Australia is to look at this question because we are looking for markers in the blood which predict whether someone's going to have severe disease or not and uh, we're including in our samples people who are from a range of different ethnicities and we will widen the scope as we go through the study to see if we can find a sort of molecular signature that's in the blood that predicts who is at high risk and who is at low risk. And then hopefully that will also lead us to a mechanism to try and un unpick some of this. But there's a range of factors, and I think socioeconomic factors are probably quite high up on the list. What do you know, asks somebody, about reports of a new unknown pneumonia 
outbreak in Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan's denied it, but China has alleged the country has experienced an outbreak of an unknown pneumonia. Any views on this potentially deadlier than COVID-19? Yeah, the, the information's a little bit sketchy on this at the moment. So I know nothing more at the moment other than what is just printed on web pages and, and reported in the lay press. I suspect that more information is going to be forthcoming. The data I have seen suggests that people have, have ruled out coronavirus as the cause of whatever this is. But don't forget, flu can circulate at any time of the year. There are other nasty respiratory viruses that can begin to circulate. And many of the natural seasons patterns of the viruses that we've we've had in seasonal patterns year after year after year those seasonal patterns have been strongly disrupted by lockdowns and, and changes in people's behavior and as a result we're going to see abnormal patterns of other diseases cropping up from time to time we're going to be very interested to see for instance what happens to the flu season this year because of paralysis of air travel people still in a state of lockdown and observing social distancing it'll be very interesting to see what that does to the flu this year and in future years. So it may well be that it's it's a, a strain of flu that's causing this, or it's something else, heaven forbid. This is one of the questions that somebody has sent in. How come our lockdown uh, got rid of COVID-19 uh, in the community, but not other cold and flu viruses, which are now circulating <laughs> again post-lockdown? Yeah, <laughs> didn't I know this too well? I felt rather giddy and uh, a little bit feverish and had a slight sore throat yesterday. Not coronavirus, because I've been testing myself regularly, but just another common cold virus. And other people are writing to me saying, I don't understand why it is that I'm taking all these precautions and I, I've not gone out with my mates for weeks and I've still got a cold. Where have I caught this from? And the answer is viruses have uh, spent their you know evolutionary lifetimes evolving to become really very good at what they do because their life depends upon it and um, that they they therefore are really really good at transmitting from person to person there's already a big burden of uh, these other viruses in society already because they circulate all the time and what you're doing when you have lockdowns and social distancing etc is you are biasing the transmission rates in your favour, not the virus's favour. But if you've already got a humongous amount of virus in society already, then it takes proportionally longer for it to be got rid of if you if you do a lockdown if you than if you've got a very small amount of, of virus. Now, New Zealand had a very small amount of coronavirus to start with, relatively speaking, certainly compared to, say, the UK. So therefore, it succumbed to strong pressure and ferreting it out more easily than things that people weren't actually actively and aggressively looking for, like the common cold. But, I mean, we could go to extremes. We could try and stamp out some causes of the common cold it would take an enormously amount of effort and it would it would just come back pretty quickly, which is why no one's tried to do it. Uh, Long-term damage, because this is of a concern and the understanding seems to indicate that it affects the lungs almost as far as people could, could know permanently. Of course, we don't know yet. What do you think about that? What do you know? Well, we're very worried about this. And what we are seeing here is emerging evidence that this coronavirus infection is not simply a lung infection or a respiratory infection. This is a multi-system disorder. And a pathologist friend of mine and I and some neurologists have uh, sent off some papers to some of the American medical journals documenting people with brain changes in response to coronavirus infection in the last week or so. I noticed that the journal Brain has also just published a big case series of people who caught coronavirus and then developed strange neurology, in some cases very severe neurological changes, 
in other cases more trivial, short-lived. We're also seeing people. What about what's what is what? How is that manifested? The neurological changes. Well, in some cases, we've seen people who became unconscious and then just didn't wake up. And in the cases that we wrote up, we've uh, looked in the brain stems of these patients, and we can see inflammation in the brain stem, and we hypothesize because the part of the brainstem that is affected is where the vagus nerve originates and the vagus nerve supplies a lot of things in the body but it goes down to the gut and it's therefore potentially a point of contact with coronavirus going through your intestines and we know that coronavirus replicates not just in the lungs but also in the intestines so we're hypothesizing that the vagus nerve may be one route into the central nervous system for the virus and if it gets in there it may cause inflammation which in turn damages other neurological structures including those concerned with consciousness and those concerned with other things like respiration and we know that some people get this state called happy hypoxia where they'll run a very low oxygen level and they're not terribly worried by it about by it and they're not overtly symptomatic and we wonder if this is all, all linked up but there are other syndromes as well there's uh, heart changes there's a paper that um, scientists are about to publish showing that there are long-term changes to the heart in up to half of people who previously had no heart history after they've had covid there are people with kidney damage liver changes we're seeing evidence that people are developing a sort of diabetic like metabolism after they recover from covid and then there are people like a friend of mine in cambridge i was talking to who actually and ironically she works on controlling outbreaks of disease and she's got what she calls one of these long-haul covid syndromes where you just don't feel well and she's had it for two months so it's a really weird disease this and at the moment we're, we're actively and aggressively trying to learn is it distinctively different then from what we would normally regard as ordinary influenza because that also involves inflammation does it not Oh yes, and and I was thinking about this when I was um, thinking about what we might talk about this evening, because uh, or this morning for you. But um, in 1918, there was uh, the Spanish flu pandemic, and off the back of that, there was a cohort of people who developed a condition of the nervous system called encephalitis lethargica. And Oliver Sacks wrote about some of these people in his book, and it became a blockbuster movie, Awakenings. Awakenings. Wonderful story. And I found myself writing about him the other day because we documented this bizarre patient who had appeared in the medical literature last week, nothing to do with coronavirus, but this person who couldn't see numbers between the number two and the number nine. They could see ones and zeros, okay, but they couldn't see and interpret those numbers because of a degenerative brain condition. And I, I said, well, Oliver Sacks would have, would have loved to write about this patient, I'm sure but those individuals who are in the awakening series had inflammation in their brain brought on by flu so we know other viruses do do these things there is there is a sort of inflammatory domino effect but what we're what we're thinking is that coronavirus infects you causes an inflammatory response and in some people that's mitigated or blunted and dealt with very quickly but in others it goes into a sort of immunological tailspin and it ceases to be all about the virus and it's as though your immune system then goes into an autoimmune state and it impacts on a range of different tissues in the body and who those people are going to be who are at risk of that and whether there's an intervention we could bring to bear early on in their disease that would blunt the effects of that that's what we're trying to find out now. Vitamin D, of course, people keep on reminding us that vitamin D, and this goes to why BAME people are more afflicted by COVID-19. Vitamin D in dark-skinned people uh, may be low, and uh, if you increase vitamin D, 
it reduces mortality. Uh, any latest on that? Well, it's certainly true that people who are darker skinned will make less vitamin D because of natural sun exposure uh, because the melanization of the skin blunts the ability of the ultraviolet radiation to get into the skin and react with 7-dehydrocholesterol, which is, which is then turned into cholecalciferol, which becomes 122-dihydroxycholecalciferol, which is active vitamin D. We are all, though, if we live at extremes of latitude, at the end of winter, vitamin D deficient. And I did this on myself recently. I, I was sent a, a biochemical test for something I was doing, and, and I thought, well, I'm not subjecting people to this until I've tried it on myself. I regard myself as ferociously healthy. I'll try this. And, uh, and I, I blood tested myself with this kit, and when I got the results back, it said I was off the bottom of the scale for vitamin D. And um, and I thought, well, it's a wake-up call to me. Um, you know, I, I've got pale skin. I get, you know, I thought plenty of sunshine. But in wintertime, that sun's not strong enough. And there, it's not a coincidence that in places that have uh, this sort of paucity of vitamin D, there is a higher rate of multiple sclerosis, which is an autoimmune condition, as well as other, other autoimmune conditions. So we think there is an association. Whether or not, though, this is a causal association in COVID and people with darker skin, we don't know. And it's the thing that people are looking at at the moment. So what did you do about your low vitamin D? Oh, the, the same as I did before, which was um, concluded I really should get more sunshine. I flew to Western Australia and, and spent a couple of weeks there doing some work. And, um, and that was probably replete for vitamin D for another few months. Because the beautiful thing about vitamin D is it's a fat-soluble vitamin. So uh, as long as you make enough uh, hay when the sun shines, and the guidance goes that you need about 15 minutes of sunshine on your face per day. And that, that should give you enough vitamin D. But at the same time, if your shadow is longer than you are, then you're probably not making enough vitamin D. So as long as you have a short shadow and 15 minutes of sun exposure, you should make enough vitamin D. You then store that in your liver and another. How long does it body. last for in the uh, liver? Well, it, it lasts as long as you as long as until it's used up. So if you therefore have a big burst of vitamin D, you've probably buy yourself a few months. But by the end of wintertime, if you then go through a prolonged long winter, you could end up quite vitamin D deficient. So that's why people then go so for, for supplementation. So dietary supplements, Chris? Yeah, that's right. Yes, so that, things like that right. um, are, are worth doing. Um, people who are older, people who have dark skin, people who can't get access to the sunshine, frail elderly, people who are at risk of osteoporosis need to keep their bones strong. Those sorts of people can really benefit from a vitamin D supplement, especially in wintertime. There is um, some concern about chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, and we have a listener who asks us this every week. And so I'm obliged to ask you whether it's being overlooked, um, as he suggests by mainstream media, that chronic fatigue syndrome is very much associated with COVID-19. Any views on this, Chris? Well, it's definitely not being overlooked by, by myself and my colleagues because we're very aware. We know people and the evidence is rising now. Most of us know people who are saying, you know what, I've had this now for eight weeks, nine weeks, ten weeks, I'm still not right. And many of the people I'm talking to who are complaining of these symptoms, some of them were very, very fit running marathons and things. And they're saying, I can barely take two steps. So we don't know what's causing this. But we do know that at least a proportion of people with what is dubbed chronic fatigue syndrome, I think that's 
chronic fatigue syndrome is an umbrella term that re- that describes a range of different symptomatologies that people have, but at least a fraction of those appear to have some kind of inflammatory aspect to them and may well have an autoimmune inflammatory syndrome uh, element to it for, for various reasons. And therefore, it may be that coronavirus is triggering a similar immunological manifestation that occurs in some people with chronic fatigue syndrome. It's an area that people are actively pursuing to try to understand this um, and it's certainly something that is is becoming more common as we see more people recovering from it and then not recovering as it were because they're left with these quite debilitating symptoms. Let me see if I can squish another couple of quick questions in because we have so many I feel guilty about leaving so many out. (laughs) Prolonged use of hand sanitizer and general increased attention to cleanliness. Do you think this will lower our long-term resistance to germs of all kinds? Well, judging by the conversation so far, where I've confessed to having a cold, the person who sent in the question, who's (laughs) saying, where are all these flus and things still coming from? They're presumably still succumbing. I think there's plenty for our immune systems to be getting on with in the meantime. And one other sort of salient point I'd like to highlight is Uh, It's very sad that half a million people have died of coronavirus around the world. But actually, let's look at some other numbers, because last year there were 10 million cases of measles and about 150,000 people died of that. Now, that's a preventable disease, and it's a preventable disease that we've had a vaccine that will prevent it for decades. And so those 150,000 people uh, are dying every year or will be dying every year. And that number used to be even higher. So it's very easy to take your eye off the general ball and and just obsess about coronaviruses. But actually, there are other threats that uh, have been claiming lives um, at very, very large numbers year on year on year that we, we often tend to overlook. So um, that that still remains a priority. But no, there's still plenty for our immune systems to be getting on with. So I'm not too worried about that. I'm more worried about people getting sick and tired of doing the obsessive hand hygiene and, and then letting their guard down, actually. Does what you've just said not undermine the urgency of COVID-19 and suggest that we are overreacting? Well, in, I think some quarters people are overreacting a bit. Um, I, th- I also think I want to remind people that there are other threats as well and we mustn't take our eye off the ball because uh, measles, as I said, claims um, 150,000 lives, which is uh, a third of the number that have died of coronavirus. But coronavirus has been around for less than a year. Measles has been doing this for many, many, many years, probably 2,000 years, um, claiming you know thousands of lives. And flu every year goes around the world and probably claims you know three quarters of a million people every year die of the flu. Uh, so these these remain very important threats, and we we mustn't suffer from. Um, sort of tunnel vision because we're obsessing about one thing and ignore these other threats. Last year, for instance, 7 million people died of tobacco-related illness around the world. That was an entirely preventable cause of death. And 11 million people died of starvation. And we threw away, in developed countries, twice as much food as it would have cost to feed the 11 million who died of hunger. And so when you see it in those terms, you think, actually, yes, maybe we do need a big rebalancing to go on. You're going to have to define overreacting now, Chris. In in what respect? Well, you said that in some cases we may well be overreacting to this coronavirus. What would overreacting look like? Yeah, what, what I think is happening is that people are... Uh, who have very little to worry about are tending to worry too much and people who we know are the ones most at risk, some of them are throwing caution to the wind. And and I think a, a good strategy is for us all to remain vigilant 
but at the same time not to be too fearful because there is a price and that price is that if we're robbing young people of their education if we're robbing people of their livelihoods by running on ferocious debts in western countries there is a very real risk that you know poverty causes ill health and disease as well and and there will come a point where the the pill is definitely uh, a higher price to pay than the ill and we have to make sure we don't cross that line the relativity theory though ends up with us all doing nothing doesn't it what do you mean by doing nothing? Well, if you say, look here, measles kills this many million and the ordinary flu kills that very million, so why have we locked down our entire economy to deal with something that is less harmful? Mm. Um, I think what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to highlight the fact that these diseases haven't gone away they remain big threats and if we're going to put this enormous emphasis on coronavirus we should make sure that we uh, are consistent and we are we are paying similar attention to other threats and other reasons for loss of life that go on and not just focus on the ones that we want to focus on because they're a problem right here right now when this is all done and dusted we must not forget that where this came from and how this happened and uh, and we must learn from this not sure how many threats you can mobilise society against at one time, though, are you? This has certainly been a wake-up call, and I hope that when we come out the other side of all this that uh, we'll come out with a world that's in a better place. Um, I think it's forced people to totally change their viewpoint. It's forced people to change their lives, and it's forced people to try things and develop things and do things that they thought previously they could never do or would not be possible. I hope we don't get back to completely what we dub normal. I hope that we hold on to some of the benefits of, of some of this and uh, and also learn from what hasn't gone as well and try to put in place things that will stop us repeating these mistakes that we made before. Fingers crossed. Thank you, Chris. Chris Smith, virologist from Cambridge University.